This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our December edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? I'm good, Justin. Waiting for some snow to fall. But other than that, like, uh, you know, things are good. Indeed. I hope by the time this episode airs that we will sort of be fully into winter. But at the moment, in the first half of December, it is not that way. Anyway, last month, we talked about the crisis in our political labor markets. There are fewer people running for elected office. And those that are elected tend to have less experience in government. We painted a fairly bleak picture and closed with a promise to at least try to offer some potential solutions in this month's episode. So here we are, Bryce, um, and I'm sure with a full month to think about it, you've figured out a complete solution. Absolutely. I've got all of the solutions. This was an easy one. It didn't take much time. I just sat down this morning and it just all came to me. That's just to say that solutions are not easy. Otherwise, they probably would have emerged. Or perhaps the solutions are easy, but they're just really hard to implement. And so we'll go through um, what we think is a list of potential solutions. So let's start with an idea that we have talked about before, one that's showing promising results in states like Alaska, and that's ranked choice voting. So Bryce, what is ranked choice voting and how can it help? Okay, so the system that most of us are used to is called first past the post. First past, that's a really kind of complicated name for, yeah, for a system. Yeah, all it means is that whoever has the most votes wins, doesn't matter what percentage you get. So if you have four candidates run, right. um, you Winner can- Winner take all, right? You can win with 21% of the votes or you know, what are 25% of the vote. And okay. you know, so what happens is you really have a strong incentive to have only two candidates in the race. And you know, because otherwise somebody is stealing from one of the, quote, most viable candidates, right? And so ranked choice voting basically says, well, okay, fine, we're going to let everybody, anybody wants to qualify or whatever it is. And then the voter doesn't just pick one. They say, oh, I like this one, and then I like that, and you put them in order. Sure. And then an algorithm goes through and looks at your votes and basically says, okay, well, you got the least votes, so you're out, so we're going to go back to your voters and we'll give them, your, you know, whoever you put second will now give your votes to. Okay. And you just keep going through that until somebody now has 50.1% of the vote. And one way to kind of draw this out a little bit is to look back at the 2016 Republican primary, right? There were 16 or so candidates early on. And candidate Donald Trump at the time was steady at somewhere between 30 and 40% of the of the polls of the of the of the likely voters, whatever the polls specified. Another way of looking at it was like consistently 60% wanted somebody else. Now it was a collection of a bunch of different people, so it's hard to draw firm conclusions there, but this system that you're describing can alleviate some of that. Yeah, and what it means is that you can have more candidates in an election. Um, and I can now express that my first choice was for this candidate. Right. Right? Even if they don't always win. The market learns that, oh, there's a constituency for this candidate so that then future candidates know that, oh, I, you know, because what we have with just two parties, particularly two polarized parties, is it's really easy to have a caricature of who people are voting for. Yeah. 
uh, because it's like, well, there's just, you know, there's just the, those other guys, right? And that are, those other guys are a whole bunch of different people, frequently who don't like each other even within the, the little party. But sure. it's like, well, well, this is who I got to vote for, right? And with, you know, with ranked choice voting, in theory, you can empower more candidates to run. You can see that there is a broader range of people avail- you know, that, you know, people do support. And, you know, you will likely end up with different candidates ultimately winning because of who gets ranked second now matters. So let's take a look at Alaska. Senator Lisa Murkowski has been able to persist kind of in the independent category, had been a Republican for a long time, but is now the elected senator um, as an independent. How has ranked choice voting sort of played out in that state? She's essentially been able to kind of assemble her own coalition outside of a party. Okay. Uh, You know, she still caucuses with Republicans, but she is a true independent, right? And that, you know, the the people who, if she were running in a primary, she would likely lose in a Republican primary. Right. Right. But she has managed to cobble together a coalition that can win in a general election. And that's the same kind of idea that ranked choice voting is supposed to empower, right? It's supposed to empower local unique coalitions. You know, it's supposed to allow other groups to rise up and be able to at least compete because they can show that they're viable. And that then allows you to build infrastructure around that. I got really interested in ranked choice voting several years ago, you know, because I, I was looking at a lot of House races or Senate races or whatever it is. And it's just they're not competitive. Right. And it just annoyed me. Mm-hmm. I was like, everyone should have competition. Right? Yeah. There should be competition. Yeah. You know, if you're great, great. Don't worry about it. But like, there shouldn't be this notion of, well, you know, I'm a Democrat in Mississippi and there's just nothing for me, no chance for me to have any kind of a voice. Yeah. Right? And you look at it, like a lot of states with single party governance just don't perform well. No, they don't perform well. And particularly the longer it goes on, right? Yeah. You kind of become subject to some, you know, pathologies that are, you know, that kind of arise from one party rule. Mm-hmm. But why isn't there something else? Right. And turns out that ranked choice voting is, is the problem. There's right. still whatever, 25, 30% that are really Democrats in that area. Well, they want to be Democrats. And so, you know, if you're like, well, we want to run some third party. Well, all you're really doing is harming the chance that you're, those Democrats might win uh, ever. And so, you know, you kind of just – it all just devolves back into, well, you just have two options. And then these really fringe candidates who get 1% of the vote. But like even then, they're technically potentially affecting the electoral outcome. And so, you know, that's where ranked choice voting is, at least in theory, it's supposed to enable the full spectrum of representation. Okay, so there's some potential there, and some states are doing it. It seems to be part of the dialogue, at least now. So it's a solution that you could see kind of coming to pass. New York City mayor elections are done this way. I think mayor elections in San Francisco have been done this way for a long time. I think Massachusetts has it for at least some things. Alaska has it for some things. I think Maine has it for some things. Mm -hmm. That's not to say it's not complicated. Sure. And there's a learning curve, right? In fact, the, the nonprofit that's been kind of pushing this for a while... You know, I think they made a relatively smart move in that a lot of what they did early on was they said, oh, well, we'll we're going to go to college campuses and we're going to convince them to hold their student body elections mm, this way. Yeah, yeah. Right? To get people familiar with it. Although therein lies potentially part of the solution is that you get somebody who's more thoughtful going down the ballot rather than just picking right or left or red or blue or whatever and sort of doing a party line vote. 
another one of the selling points is it's supposed to reward people for being nice. If you're not, if I'm not going to be your first choice, I want to be your second. And if I'm a jerk, yeah. It's, hard for me to get to that second position because you just don't like me, right? So basically, instead of just having this like, oh, I like this guy, it matters if I like the other guys too. Right. And that might sort of reduce negative campaigning to some degree, right? Like it it doesn't make as much sense to say like, hey, that other candidate is terrible on all things. You might cultivate a winning position by saying, you know, I agree with candidate X on a few things, but here's where we disagree and here's why. And that makes it then out, opens the door for me to get your second choice vote. Yeah. Right. It basically go. allows us to say, well, this is what we agree on and this is what we disagree on. So now we can really focus on as opposed to just tribalism. Right. You know, as opposed to this is just a representative of a tribe. I literally care nothing about who he is or who she is, what they stand for, whether they're corrupt, whether they're, you know, all these things which we used to punish politicians for, but we pretty much, I mean, we finally reached a level where George Santos got kicked out. But like, you know, for the most part, we have increasingly, the scandals that were immediate disqualifiers right, when no I was longer. a child are no longer disqualifying they don't even, like, become in part any of the way, conversation. shape, or form. Yeah. Right. Okay. So ranked choice voting, I think we covered that. Let's go on to some other ones. So uh, one thing I think about often and we talk about often uh, on this show is just sort of the state of local media. There's been a decline in local news reporting. We need a more robust news gathering uh, operation at the local level because what happens at the local level, what happens at city council and the state legislature, that's the stuff that affects our lives in the most meaningful way. And if we don't know what's happening – it's hard for us to make informed choices there. Um, yet the the business model for um, local media is uh, is really under threat right now. Um, I don't know if you have any comments about how to build up that system. I think we have some prominent examples here in Montana with the Montana Free Press and here in Missoula with The Pulp. Those are two nonprofit organizations that are showing uh, pretty good signs of sustainability in, in doing good independent nonprofit journalism, but we need more of it. We need to reestablish community. The representative that we're electing needs to represent a real tangible community. Um, there, that Because it's a community, it needs to have its own way of gathering and disseminating information within that community, one that is reliable, and that's where media comes in. In an ideal world, it would be small enough to actually be a recognizable community. Um, so that speaks to something we talked about last time, which is potentially smaller districts. Sure. And then, and I know that this isn't allowed apparently uh, under our constitution, but I would change campaign financing in such a way that if not all, at least most of the funding for a campaign should come from that community. Okay, so campaign financing is not specifically mentioned in the Constitution. You're talking about the downstream consequences of something like the Citizens United right. Uh, decision. Right, because, you know, Montana tried to limit campaign right. spending, and apparently we're not allowed to do it. Two-thirds of money in a Senate election comes from out of state. The, the, one, uh, the one fact I could find, although it's slightly dated on House of Representatives uh, elections, it's like 11% of the money in a House race comes from constituents within the district. And I just think it would be far more keeping our incentives aligned 
if to the extent that we're raising money to run a campaign, if it's not going to be just publicly financed, which would solve some of the problems with having to spend 40% of your time raising money, then at least it should be mostly financed from people who are electing you. I have to build relationships not with a national donor base, which requires what we talked about last time, becoming a media darling, Yep. right? I have to become a respected integral member of this viable community that we were talking about. And you know that's where I have to get the resources to encourage me to run, to actually fund whatever it takes to run. But you know, I mean, you maybe wouldn't need as much if it was a smaller district with a more viable community because it would be we would already know you because you are ideally being selected from a community of which you are already a notable member and a member and have a reputation amongst people that can be spread mouth to mouth, person to person, because it's like, oh, Justin is running. Oh, yeah, I know Justin. And, you know, you get that kind of stuff, which, you know, the candidates who run presumably have a network of people that will share their story with them. But when you need to collect 40 million votes or something or 20 million votes or even 18 million votes or in Montana, 600,000 votes or 300,000 votes or whatever that you can't do that. Right. And so to the extent that we can create a community that is now being represented and then, you know, the resources to run a campaign and the media coverage of that campaign are an actual community, I think that would re-encourage people within that community to consider this an act of service, right? As opposed to an act of ideological commitment. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about how to fix our political labor markets. And so you mentioned a few moments ago the notion of public financing, and that's a, a, a term or concept we hear often, but rarely is it defined first. What is public campaign financing, or or at least how it's sort of currently talked about in the media? Um, Well, you know, I mean, people, when they fill out their taxes, you can check on the box to donate a dollar to the presidential, you know, campaign fund. And back when I was a kid, that was where candidates got their money from. The fact that this is not used is not necessarily a partisan proposition. Like Obama declined public financing in 2008, um, because he realized that he just was going to have a much bigger war chest in the private markets. Yeah, it's limiting. I, I can't remember the rules on it, but like there were limits on it or things sure. that you couldn't do or whatever it is. And, you know, certain places have at least tried different models of public financing. And, you know, it becomes a problem if there's no limit on the private, you know, because you're basically tying your hands. Um, so you have to limit the private to make the public viable. But in an ideal world, this is part of the problem, right? You know, we want a thoughtful, community-minded person participating in the process is, it sounds awful to spend 40% of my life raising money. Well, that doesn't, mm-hmm. I'm out, 
I don't yeah. want to do it, right? And, you know, there's lots of people for whom this now becomes the thing that's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Sure. Right? You know, I'm interested in public policy. I'm, you know, quite willing to learn and, you know, soak up all the information so that we can pass the laws that we want to pass, whatever it might be. I think there's a lot of people who are interested in public policy, but who have no interest in yeah, turning their life into a fundraiser. We're talking broadly about changing the incentives. And one of the things we flagged last month was you know, the, the fact that the wages are relatively low. Like being a member of Congress used to be a, a fairly high paying job. You were in the 1% of income earners in the country roughly. And now that's no longer the case. I don't know if if trying to legislate higher rates of pay for our members of Congress would be a, uh, a viable policy option, but we uh, paying people more would attract more people in a way. If you want to be a state representative here in Montana, like, you know, uh, people have tried to roughly calculate the hourly wage. It's below minimum wage. It's a below minimum wage job. When employers are running around saying they can't find people to work, the labor economist always comes in and says, well, you should try raising the wages, Right. And so we need to figure out what is an, an appropriate hourly wage. This is a job, right? And, uh, you know, just because the legislature doesn't meet all, all the time or your school board doesn't meet all the time or your city council doesn't meet all the time, they, you know, they can be part-time jobs, but they're jobs, right? And you have to pay people to do a job. If you're not paying them, you're selecting on other things, right? You know, I remember having a conversation with a former legislature here in Montana, who described it as the world's most expensive hobby. And it's like, well, who are we selecting then, right? You know, this shouldn't be a hobby. This is a job. Well, and if it's a hobby, it it, it will attract only people that can afford that That's hobby. Exactly. And that, you know, excludes a bunch of different voices. It's excluding a lot of different people from the process. So we need to basically say, look, this is how many hours of actual worker in the job, whatever it is that we think that is the, the level of effort that this requires, we should be paying somebody, some people that amount. Like that is a, that to me is a no brainer. But again, I'm an economist and I think it, to me, wages matter because if you don't pay wages, you select on other things. What about paying for performance. Are there pay schemes we could uh, implement? Paying per legislation produced, things like that. How do we use compensation to hold our elected officials accountable? So this is where sortition comes in. Sortition okay. is where you essentially randomly select people to make decisions related to public policy. Okay. Just like I get called for jury service, I sometimes get called for evaluate the legislature public mm. service, right? Okay. And, you know, I, there's lots of different ways that you could imagine it. Maybe it's on certain bills. Maybe it's for certain committees. Are you voting in line with what the random population is suggesting? You know, maybe there's some way that, you know, because you don't want to incent people to only just do what the majority wants. Sure. You know, I'm enough of a Madisonian that I think that you've got to be aware of the tyranny of the majority. And we don't want things yo-yoing around as, you know, there's some value and efficiency of stability. But, you know, that said, it would be, you know, I, I would like to see my representatives more often than not um, aligning with the will of the people. So some sort of a performance r review done by the public in a way that's that's short of an election. And it could be collective, right? Sure. Like, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, what did the legislature pass this session, right? And then, you know, you kind of go through, you kind of assemble like a bunch of these juries and they basically kind of give, give a grade. 
A few others here in our remaining time, term limits. I mean, it creates more term turnover in the system, yet at the same time, we've talked about experience being a problem. How do you feel about term limits? I generally don't like term limits. Um, I think, again, this is a job, and it takes some time to figure out the job. Mm, yeah. Uh, and frequently that time is measured in years. And so if you're saying, well, you can only serve for this amount of time, it's like, well, I just figured out the job and now I'm done. To me, I mean, if you want to have age limits, I'm willing to, you know, consider we have we have age limits on the lower end. We should maybe have age limits on the upper end. But just hard term limits have never made sense to me because it takes a long time, you know, particularly in a seniority system. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, oh, OK, well, you know, you're just rising up, you're figuring something out. And then it's like, well, I got this one chance to get stuff done because I've been here for six years and now I'm this is my last two years. And, you know, because everybody else is gone now, this is my turn at the top. And so I get these two years, so there's one session or whatever it is. Uh, it just doesn't strike me as, you know, like if you're good at the job, I, you should be able to serve. Reinvesting in civic education, bolstering our civic education, particularly at the high school level and in the college level. How do you feel about that? Yeah, civic education certainly should be part of this. Now, I think institutions in this space matter. So mm -hmm. it's not just demand and supply, right? So the institutions are, go, you know, are, are mediating all of these things. But at the end of the day, yeah, you need, you need people who understand what they are voting for. So civic education is part of the demand side. It's, it, it is also part of the supply side, right? You know, if people who run for office have an understanding of what they're supposed, you know, sure, what like, their job is, that the dissemination of you know, the wisdom that has been passed down, they speak to things and it's very clear they don't understand the issue. And some of that reflects the fact that, you know, some of the people who we attract to run uh, are not running because they're like, I understand the system and I understand that I am going to be a good person to operate in the system to help steer it in ways that are going to benefit my community um, as opposed to, I'm going to be a cheerleader for a tribe. Yeah, and running against the system is is a position that tends to have a lot of rewards these days. Yeah, and which is you know it's also self destructive, right? Because we just can keep convincing people that the system is bad, um, which then leads to the bad people running. Because why would I run for to participate in a bad system? Sure, um, it's like a know, Groucho Marx quote. We are just you know denigrating ourselves into our own problems, right? It's like, yeah, this is all terrible. And, you know, look, there are terrible parts to the system. This whole episode is predicated on the system being, quote, terrible. <laughs> but, like, you have to believe that there's an opportunity. You know, and this is also, again, this goes back to that community thing, right, that I was talking about. So I think part of our problem is, is that we are so used to not having any agency over what happens. As voters. As, as people yeah, citizens. in, in yep. the community, right? Like, you know, it's like, I don't like this. And then nothing ever changes on right. it. Right. Right. You know, and some of that is because we've nationalized everything, right? We only think that national politicians can solve things and we don't think about the fact that you're, the, I can solve a lot of problems locally. But some of the problem becomes when I try and solve things locally and the other tribe doesn't like whatever the idea of the local is, is that we're, we're going to take control of the state government or we'll take control of the federal government and make it so you can't do what you want. Right. And we have to figure out what the right balance of local agency is to allow people to believe and have hope 
that they are that we are a community and we are have agency over what happens in our community as opposed to like we're just sitting here at the whims of federal government politicians uh, and I, you know, I, and I do think that's part of the problem and why it's very easy to denigrate the system and then run it down is because we don't think that we have agency over, you know, the whole system is supposed to be, we, the people speak, and then the system responds to our voice. But when there's 350 million people, there is no, we, the people, Sure. right? So the idea is supposed to be federalism or localism. And, you know, and I do think that there's some wisdom in accepting the real hard problems that come from allowing local jurisdictions to make their own choices. Because sometimes they're going to make just choices that are bad for people in those communities. And I like those people or I maybe like one of those people and I don't want those communities to exist. Sure. And that's where the – and that's a tension. That's a trade-off. But – if this, if 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 it all just becomes us, well, I don't have any control over anything, so the whole system sucks. So let's burn it all to the ground, you know. Which is, I feel, where a, an increasing percentage of people are just like, well, it doesn't matter, you know. And I'm enough of a small C conservative to be like, look, the f- primary goal of all of our government institutions should be the perpetuation of what we have, right? You know, because for all of its flaws. <laughs> What we have is still pretty good, right? And I think uh, we're, 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 it's way too easy to be like, well, I'm mad because of X or Y, you know, and, you, and sometimes it really is because there was an agency and you didn't like what happened to you. But at the end of the day, you're still in a better system and a better position or we collectively are that, you know, to me, that's my number one criteria if I'm evaluating a candidate, which is, are you going to burn this all down? Because that's not okay with me. Right. Right. Like, you know, what I have here, what we have here in the United States and what we have had here in the United States, you know, for decades is pretty good. But, you know, the notion that our system is fundamentally broken and should we just destroy it all, that strikes me as, you know, we're kind of going too far. And that's, you know, it's just, and that's algorithms, the social media algorithms creating the, the same kind of misperception that teenagers deal with with respect to their bodies and all the other stuff that we as parents of teenagers have to deal with uh, in a social media age. But, you know, the same basic algorithmic problem is making us think that our government is much uglier than it in fact is. Bryce, in that answer there, you just sort of hit on a lot of our remaining ideas. I've thrown a lot at you in this conversation. You've responded to all the ideas. Any that we missed that you want to make sure we get in before we close? I feel like my little rant there is, is you know, that's kind of what I want to get to. So we'll go with that. At the very least, we learned that, uh, Bryce, you are indeed enough of a Madisonian. So <laughs> um, we made some news today. Anyway, the, the point is that, one, you have to care about it to fix it. And two, there's no single solution. It's going to take a lot of space different solutions that roll up into us making it better slowly and steadily and we just need to engage in that pursuit yeah and d- allow different places to do different things right we, so experiments that we, can matter. we can all be oh look I, what's happening in alaska is interesting it's happening in maine or whatever it is let's just let people do different things yeah and then allow us to you know to figure out if it works and if we like it then we'll adopt it and if we don't we'll say oh let's not do that we can make ourselves more perfect right there it is. We're, we're quoting the Constitution all over the place. I know. Look at us. 
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.